Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Let's listen to the word of God together. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptized with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, can one of the staffers, can you turn me down a little bit? It's a little bit echoey. Thanks. Let's pray. Father, we confess that, Lord, we are a people who love ourselves way too much. We want to be great. We want to be seen as powerful and smart and funny and strong and cool. And Lord, forgive us for thinking that our lives are about us, for not knowing and trusting and rejoicing that, Lord, everything is about you. So I pray, Lord, you show us how great you are and how small, Lord, we are. And yet in your greatness, we would find our purpose, that, Lord Jesus Christ, as we gaze upon your mission, we would also find our mission. I thank you so much for our Lord Youth Group. I thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to open your word together. And I pray, Lord, you teach us and you'd help us. We need you so much, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. What's the mission of your life? You ever thought about that? What's the mission of your life? I mean, it's pretty easy to wander through life. Like, you know, kind of purposeless, aimless. You wake up in the morning, hit the snooze button, wake up again, stumble to the bathroom, brush your teeth, like practically fall down the stairs, eat some breakfast, and then, you know, flop into your car when you're, all your parents drive you to school. And then at school, you sit through boring classes, hang out with some friends during lunch, sit through some more boring classes, and then go to sports practice. You get home late, you scarf down dinner, practice, pi uh, practice piano, study really hard late into the night, and then collapse into bed and repeat over and over again. Sure, on the weekends, you know, you have youth group, you have church, you can maybe spend some time with some friends, play video games, play a sport uh, tournament, but really, most of life is same old, same old, isn't it? But why? What's the purpose of it all? 
Why do you do what you do? Why do you get up in the mornings? Why do you go to school? Why do you work hard? Why do you come to church? Why do you play sports? What's your mission? What's your purpose? What's your motivation? If you're like me, when I was in middle school, you probably have like some vague idea, but you really don't know. When I was in middle school, at least, I jumped around from this purpose to that purpose to this purpose to that person purpose. It was always changing. It was always unstable. In our passage tonight, Jesus reveals his mission for his life. That is, for the very third time to his disciples. And in doing so, Jesus calls us to find our mission in his mission. To find our life in his life. He commands us to lay down our empty ambitions, to abandon our foolish ways, and find ourselves in him. And to come into the way, the truth, and the life. If your mission for living is separate from Christ, you're not really living. If your purpose in life is disconnected from Jesus, it's about as strong as a house built on the sand. Here today, and tomorrow, gone. If the ambition for your life is isolated from Jesus, you will have no lasting hope, no lasting peace, no eternal life. So for our own joy, let's listen to what Jesus' mission is. Let's learn of him. Our key idea is that we must find our life mission in Jesus' mission, which was to glorify God by suffering, giving his life as a ransom for many. First point, Jesus is the servant of Yahweh. Jesus is the servant of Yahweh. Look at verse 32. And while they're on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus is walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. What is going to happen to him in Jerusalem? Now, this is the third time in the book of Mark where Jesus actually explains what's going to happen. First, he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. After three days, rise again. Pretty clear, right? You understand what he's, going to, what he's talking about. Second time, he says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Again, very clear. But now look at verse 33. This is the third time he's warning his disciples what's going to happen. He says, see, look, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, that's the leaders of the Jews, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They'll mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now, this third time is much more detailed than the first two, Right? And this is because Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen to him. He knew that they were walking into the hottest part of the fire. And he walked straight in. Why? Why did he do this? He did this because he knew this was God's purpose for him. He knew that he was going to die for the sins of his people. This was the plan from all the way before the beginning of the world. He knew he must be killed in Jerusalem. He knew that Judas would betray him. He knew that Jews would condemn him to die. And yet he also knew that the Jews couldn't kill him themselves, and so they'd have to go to the Romans. The Romans, therefore, would crucify him. That means he knew that he would be beaten and mocked and flogged and finally killed on a Roman cross. And he knew that after he died, after he paid for the sins of his people, he would be resurrected from the dead. So how did Jesus know all that? I mean, do you know your future? I don't. 
But Jesus did. Jesus somehow knew. And yes, he's God, so yes, God knows all things. Technically, that's true. But I think he actually knew because the Old Testament prophesies about his suffering. The Old Testament prophesies. That means predicts beforehand what's going to happen. His suffering. In the book of Isaiah, there's one coming called the servant of the Lord or the servant of Yahweh. Go ahead and take your Bibles and go all the way back to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. It's a prophet. It's probably like smack dab right in the middle of your Bible, if you don't know what that is. Um, if you need to use the table of contents, go ahead and do that. It's the book of Isaiah. And go to chapter 52. And if you don't have a Bible, maybe you can sit next to someone who does and read with them. We're going to read a pretty large section of this, so you want to follow along. Now, the book of Isaiah was written about 600 years before Jesus was born. So it's like 680. It's a long time before. Does anyone know what's going to happen in 600 years? Anyone? No one? Not really. Yeah, that's probably true. Me too. All right. God knew the future because he had planned it. Look at Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Okay, let's pause right there. Who's talking? Who's talking? Is Isaiah talking? No, God is talking. He's saying, my servant, God is saying, my servant will act wisely. He shall be, lift, shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Hmm, that sounds pretty good, right? So how is he going to be exalted? Verse 14. As many were ast- as astonished at you, he's talking to Israel, as many as were astonished at you, Israel, his appearance was so marred, so messed up, beyond human semblance, and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. What does that mean? It means he's got beaten up so much he didn't even look like a human anymore. Wait, what? How is, how is that being exalted? How is that a good thing? Why would this happen to God's servant? Jump down to verse, to chapter 53, verse 3. Chapter 53, verse 3. He, the servant, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed. That means we considered him not. Surely he has borne, he has carried our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken, beaten, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jump down to verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, a.k.a. he was killed? stricken for the transgression of my people. Jump down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of Yahweh, the Lord, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant, God's servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Now, you might not have studied the book of Isaiah before, but who is this talking about? Obvious, right? 
is Jesus. Stricken for our transgressions. He's the lamb that was slaughtered for the sins of the people. It's Jesus, obviously. Now notice, it's clearly Jesus, and it is written 600 years before, with amazing detail. The specificity that would be impossible to predict 600 years into the future. Jesus knew this passage. He knew that this is me. He knew he was going to be afflicted, condemned by God, despised, rejected, beaten, grieved, pierced, crushed, wounded, oppressed, judged, stricken, anguished, killed for sin. He knew it all. This was his mission. This was how he would accomplish salvation. This is what it meant that Jesus is the servant of Yahweh, the servant of God. By his death, Jesus glorified God and obeyed him all the way to the end. By his death, Jesus loved his people and made a way for us to be saved. By his death, Jesus demonstrated the glorious, lavish love of God. It had to be this way. Isaiah 53 said so. God had planned it before the beginning. And Jesus was now telling it to his disciples. Jesus was telling it to his disciples. Now let's ask a question. Why do you think Jesus would tell this to his disciples? Any guesses? So they would know, good. So you tell them, okay, like, it's going to happen, guys. Why else do you think he told them? I mean, he told them three times, right? To be ready. To be ready? Okay, good. Yeah, for them to understand better. I mean, they needed a lot of help, right? They were, they were not great listeners. <laughs> kind of reminds me of ourselves. Uh, any other reasons you can guess? Cool, let's look at our key idea. What's our key idea say? We find our mission in Jesus' mission. We find our mission in Jesus' mission. It's not that he's just saying, hey, guys, I'm going to go suffer. But he's actually also saying, I'm going to suffer in this way, and you need to follow me. Right? You need to follow me. And we'll see that in Mark chapter 8, which we've went through before, but think about it. Jesus is inviting his disciples, inviting you, to come into his suffering. That's scary. At least for me, that's scary. Walking intentionally into the fire, when you know it's going to hurt, seems impossible. I mean, it seems crazy. Why would anyone do that? Let me define suffering really simply. Suffering is when things are hard. Suffering is when things are hard. And of course, there's different uh, levels of suffering. Um, some of you might really not like eating foods that are gross. Right? But some form of suffering, like you hate broccoli, okay, great. There's also like, hard video game boss levels. There's being forced to stay up late because you've got to finish your homework. There's really, really tough sports practices. There's also getting counseling for depression. That's a whole other kind of suffering. Or going through anxiety. Or dealing with drama with your friends. Or maybe sharing the gospel with someone that really hates Christians. Or maybe being mocked by your teachers because you believe in the Bible. Or, at the highest, being tortured and crucified because you follow Jesus Christ. All of it's hard. All of it's on a spectrum of suffering. And yet many of these sufferings we're willing to endure, right? I mean, who plays sports here? All people. Who practices piano and violin and all that? It's hard, right? Practice is not something you just do because it's only fun. It's difficult. And yet, these kinds of hardships, we do because we want something that's good, something that's on the opposite end, something that's on the horizon of that suffering. We want to be healthy. We want to win. We want to get better at our, at our skills. We want to have closer friendships. We want to love God more. We want to see someone get saved. We want to glorify God in our life and in our death. In other words, we think the suffering is worth it because of the reward that comes. And if we understand suffering rightly, 
We're actually blessed if we do those good but hard things. So we all suffer, and some of us suffer intentionally because we think the reward's worth it. So why wouldn't we suffer for the greatest reward? Jesus invites us to join him in his suffering. Remember Mark 8? Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And to that we ask, why Jesus? Why should I do that? I mean, that seems like really difficult. To go to the cross, to die with you, to follow you all the way there, that seems really hard. Why is that worth it? Verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. In other words, if you suffer with Jesus and follow him, what's the reward? Life. Eternal life. It's the only way to really live. It's the only way to have joy. It's the only way to do what you were made to do, that is to glorify God and trust him with everything. So in summary, suffering is not always bad. It's always hard, but it's not always bad. And when we follow Jesus and suffer with him, it's worth it. It's worth it. Even knowing that, I don't know anyone who says, I love suffering. Maybe maybe some of the really godly leaders would say that, but I'm not there yet. No one loves suffering. Suffering is always difficult, right? And whenever we suffer, there's always this temptation that, at least I have, probably you have it too, the temptation to blame God. To say, where are you, God? Why did you make my life so hard? Why don't you care about me? And when we think those things, if we think those things, we betray what we really believe. We betray that we think, if God was good, my life would be good. If God loved me, he'd give me everything I wanted. If I follow God, he will remove my suffering. Now, is that true? No. None of those things are true. In thinking that, we think God exists to serve us. We assume that his mission is to do us good. His mission is to love us when we want. His mission is to remove our pains, to grant us our desires, to bless our lives. We, not he, is at the center of the universe. And that, that's crazy. But when we think those things, we're actually in good company. Look at verse 35. This is the servants of self. And James and John, verse 35, the sons of Zebedee, all the way back in Mark 10. Sorry, I'll go turn back there. Mark 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Now this is pretty bold, right? Now this is right after Jesus says, hey, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die for the sins of the world, and you should follow me. And they're like, hey Jesus, um, you should do for us whatever we want you to do. They didn't ask a question, they just demanded it. That's bold. And Jesus asked what he want, and they say, verse 37, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left, in your glory. Now when they say in their glory, they mean in his kingdom. In other words, they're saying, hey, Jesus, when you become the king of everything, you know, you're number one, but we want to be number two and number three. They're not asking to be humble and faithful and wise. They're asking for recognition. They're asking for greatness. They're asking to be treated as if Jesus was merely a doorway to get what they want. 
fame, power, recognition. I imagine that. They're treating the Son of God as their personal servant. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 38. He says to them, you don't know what you're asking. That's really gracious. He says, you don't know what you're asking. And he simply tells them they have no idea what they're saying. Even right after hearing about how he is going to suffer, they're like, oh, no, 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 we don't want that. We just want you to glorify us. Just make us, you know, like, in charge. You can do that, right, Jesus? I mean, something is not right here. Jesus continues, are you able, this is in verse 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, this is metaphorical language, the cup and baptism, and it refers to him drinking the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus is saying, you don't know what it really takes to be exalted in the kingdom. You think that it's greatness that is good, but really lowliness is honored. You think that it is power that you should want, but truly humility is rewarded. It's not authority, but service that I want. And then the kicker, right? Can you die for sinners like me? Can you pay for the sins of the world like me? Well, verse 39, I love this. They said to him, we're able. We can do it. We can, we can do what you want to Jesus. We can be just like you. I mean, wow, right? They're so hungry for power, they're willing to deceive themselves to think that they could be the Savior. Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. And here Jesus switches the metaphor, and he says that you'll suffer just like me. Not because they can actually pay for the sins of the world, that's crazy, right? Only Jesus can do that. But he promises that they will participate in suffering like his. In other words, because he's the teacher, because he suffered, as they follow him, they too will suffer. Now, did you catch that? They ask for glory. What does Jesus promise? Agony. They ask for power. He says, you'll receive pain. He doesn't give them what they seek. He doesn't exactly the opposite. And I hate it like that, right? Why? What were, James, what were James and John seeking? They wanted glory. They wanted to live for themselves. What about you? What's the mission of your life? Why do you live? There's only two options. Yourself or God. Yourself or God. Now, when I was in middle school and high school, People always told me the reason I did everything was for college. Who's heard that before? Like, oh, like, why do I need to do this, Mom? For college. Oh, why do, why do I need to go to this event that I don't want to go to? For college. Like, why do I need to, like, take this class that I don't really want to take? For college. Okay. <laughs> Leadership at school, piano, golf team, basketball tournaments, good grades, all of that. For college. That was the, the reason. I never really liked that answer. I don't know. Because I'd ask myself, what happened after I got into college? What would be my purpose then? Get a good job? Oh, okay, cool. Well, then what? Get married? Okay, well, then what? Buy a house and raise a family? Okay, then what? Uh, work for decades, retire comfortably, and then join my riches, and then die? Like, really? That's my purpose? What if I never went to college? What if I never got my dream job? What if I never got married? What if my wife and I can't have kids? What if I get cancer and die young? What if I'm poor? Does that mean my entire life then is just a failure? I mean, if we're all going to die, 
What's the point? Just do the next thing, do the next thing, do the next thing, and then die. What's the point if that's the, how you're supposed to live your life? And you're thinking to yourself, man, like, Keith sounds like a really angsty, like, super moody teenager. You're totally right. That's who I was. <laughs> Maybe still am. But I still think the questions are good. What is the point of your life? Why do you do what you do? And is that purpose stable and steadfast? Is it worth it in the end? Or are you just tossed to and fro by circumstances and doubts? Or are you just living for the next thing? Yeah, and if you're like I was in middle school, you, ran, you would run after this purpose and then that purpose. This other thing and then back to this other thing. Be another girlfriend or another boyfriend or a good test score. The next tournament, next summer vacation, a new game, a new device, maybe just making it to the weekend. When we live like that, we're like chickens without heads, running around without knowing where we're going and without even being able to see what's in front of us. People waste their lives pursuing education, career, family, wealth, hobbies, vacations, whatever. And it's not just middle schoolers. There's people in my family who have wasted their entire lives. And they're at the very end. It's not something you just grow out of. Blessings from God can be good things. But when you pursue them as your mission, if you want them fundamentally for yourself, they become the poison of death. Let me say it plainly. If you live for yourself, you're guilty of being a glory thief. If you live for yourself, you're guilty of being a glory thief. What does that mean? We are made to glorify God. To glorify God means to live for him, not for yourself. To paint a picture worth your life that points to his greatness. To have him as the purpose, the mission, the motivation for your life. But in our sinfulness, instead, we want to glorify ourselves. We steal the glory that belongs to God and we want to make it our own. We live for college, for sports, for people's approval, for success, for our version of the perfect life, for our comforts and pleasures. We want maximal comfort, minimal stress, no pain, and absolutely no sacrifice. We post pictures and videos, scores and stories to draw attention to ourselves. That's textbook glory thievery. Instead of saying, look how good God is, we say, look at how glorious I am. That's not the life that God calls us to. It's not the good life. It's not the joyful life. That's the wasted life. Like a lightning bolt from heaven, Jesus shatters our mirage, and he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. To lose your life means to give up stealing God's glory. To lose your life means to glorify God, not yourself. To lose your life means that finally you will actually find it. You will actually find joy, not in yourself, but in Jesus. The disciples totally had missed that perspective. Have you? What's the mission of your life? Why do you do what you do? Christ teaches us our true purpose, to be the servant of all. Third point, the servant of all. Look at verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they begin to be indignant. That means angry at James and John. So, in other words, James and John weren't their only glory thieves. All 12 were guilty. Verse 42, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
In other words, kings and rulers, great ones and powerful people, they're known for flexing their authority. Do you guys know who um, Kim Jong-un is? Yeah. Yeah, who is he? Yeah, he's the dictator of North Korea. Right? He's a pretty bad president. You know what he's known for? He's known for giant parades of military strength and luxurious, extravagant displays of wealth while his people are literally starving because he's eaten and taken all their food. That's Kim Jong-un. You guys know who Elon Musk is? Who can tell me what Elon Musk is? Yeah, Caleb. Yeah, yeah, he's this really rich guy. He made Tesla, and he made SpaceX, which is actually like 30 minutes, 20 minutes from here. He has a net worth, that means he's worth all his stuff, $300 billion, making him the richest man ever. No, he's beating Jeff Bezos. So Elon Musk is known for the success of his companies and for his rampages and bullying, when he just randomly fire people that he doesn't like in the company. That's him. We expect such things from the rich and powerful. We expect them to be glory thieves. We expect them to do what they want because what they want to do is what they want to do. And we expect them to live like they're number one. And against this backdrop, Jesus says to the disciples, it shall not be so among you. What they do, you should have nothing to do with. But whoever will be great among you, you want to be great? Must be your servant. You must be your servant. And whoever would be First among you must be slave of all. In just one sentence, Jesus categorically rejects everything that th this world craves. Power, influence, ambition, glory. He chucks it out the window. And he says, you know what true greatness is? True greatness is service. You want to be great? Serve. You want to be first? Be the slave of all. That doesn't just do, mean do nice things for people. It actually means to consider them as more important than yourselves. You serve them because you consider yourself their servant. You love them and put them before yourselves because you consider them as more important than your own livelihood. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for you. Following in his footsteps is true greatness. Now, this isn't really hard to understand. You know what it means to be a servant. You know what it's like to be a slave. But it's really hard to embrace. It's really hard to live like this. When you think of greatness, what do you think of? Wealth, power, influence, skill, right? You don't think of the guy who's sweeping stuff on the floor at church. You don't think of the girl who's working behind the scenes that no one notices. When you think of greatness, do you think of simple helpfulness, joyfully serving others at youth group, helping your parents with chores, encouraging your friends, creating meaningful conversations, making newcomers at youth group feel welcome, Serving in children's ministry. Is that greatness? Jesus says it is. If only we had the mind of Christ. Now look at our last verse. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That means that the Son of Man, Jesus, left his throne in heaven, left being a king, to be a servant to give up his life, to suffer in our place for our sins. This was Jesus' mission. He came not to glorify himself, to fulfill the mission of God, to glorify God by serving. You see that? When Jesus commands us to serve to be great, he's not commanding us to do anything that he hasn't done first. 
He is the greatest because he served the most. And he says, come, follow me. Now, ransom for many is a really technical term. Um, who, who knows what a ransom is? Anyone tell me? Good, John. You got a guess? Yeah, good, perfect. It's a payment, yeah. So, like, I go to the store, I want a new, I don't know, new phone. I say, hey, here's my ransom. Is that what, it, is that what kind of payment it is? No, it's, different. it's a special kind of payment, right? Good. Uh, so, ransom is a payment that you give to, like, people who have kidnapped someone? And yes. <clears throat> yes. So, the payment, typically, to set someone free. Right? To set someone free. Like, in our day, we hear of ransoms for kidnappers, unfortunately. The basic idea is that a ransom is to set someone free from slavery or death. So for example, in the New Testament, when slaves were sold in the marketplace, people could choose and say, I will pay that slave's ransom, not to make him my slave, but to set him free. To set him free. Or that slave right there, he's going to die because of what he's done. But I will pay whatever he's done wrong, I'll pay the payment, pay his ransom, and he will not die, but go free. In Mark 10.45, though, the ransom isn't money. It's life. It's the life of the Son of God. Jesus suffered and gave up his life in the place of sinners. Right? And that should sound really familiar. What does that remind you of? It's a long passage we read together. It's in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. He bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds, we are healed. He bore the sins of many. This is the language of sacrifice, of death. You guys ever read the book of Exodus or heard of the stories in Exodus where they kill, they kill a bunch of what, right? They take the knife, they cut the throat of cow, sheep, goats, right? Those are sacrifices in the temple. They kill the animals and they burn them. You ever read the book of Exodus being like, oh my gosh, like, why oh, there's so many animal deaths? Like, this is crazy. Like, good grief. Why do they do this? Right? This is why. The sacrificial system teaches them that in order for there to be forgiveness for sins, there must be death. There must be death. All of that in the Old Testament was a big signpost pointing towards one final death, the death of Jesus Christ. Remember John the Baptist? He, when he saw Jesus, he said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's not saying Jesus is like a lamb with like four legs and like, like wool and stuff, right? He's saying, no, that's the person who's going to die to pay for the sins of his people. He's the lamb, the sacrifice, the one who made the greatest sacrifice for all. And that was Jesus' mission, to serve by dying, to serve by dying in our place for our sins. Remember, he didn't just sacrifice himself for us. He also invites us to suffer with him. If you be Christian, Christ says your mission now is to glorify God by serving him. It's to glorify God by serving him. That means every morning you get up for him because his mercy is in you every morning. That means you study hard for him because Christ actually is the fountain of all wisdom and knowledge. It means you go hard in sports for him, to enjoy the body he gave to you, and also to love your teammates because they need you to play well so you guys can win. It means you obey your parents and love your siblings ultimately for him. It means you listen to, small, to sermons, you go to a small group and share. You pray, read the Bible, come, and, come to church. 
Not because you just want to know the right answer, or because it's another activity your parents make you do, or for college, good grief, don't go to church for college. <laughs> it's because him. We want to know him better. We want to love him better. You suffer even as you follow Christ, looking for the joy that waits just over the horizon. You suffer because you can believe and know and trust him, that he has a good plan for you, that he suffered first, and therefore you follow in his good footsteps. All that you do is to glorify him. Glorify him, again, means to paint a picture that says God is great. Whatever you do, from eating to drinking to sleeping to going to school to coming to church to reading the Bible to praying, all of that is for God's glory. That's the mission of a Christian, to make God look great. That's your mission if you're a Christian. And that's the mission that Christ invites you to if you become a Christian. Now remember, Jesus promised James and John that they would suffer. And they did. James was captured by King Herod Antipas. He was killed with the sword, probably by beheading, because he proclaimed Jesus. He was the very first Christian martyr, and therefore had the honor of meeting Jesus in heaven first. John was captured at the end of his life and banished to live in exile on an island for following Jesus Christ. But he didn't die before first writing the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation, thus loving the church for his entire life. I mean, think about it. What changed them from being glory thieves to Christ's followers? What changed them from being just like, hey, life is about me, to saying, no, 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 life is about Christ, and I'm going to die for him? It's because they met the Savior. They saw him die for their sins. They saw him resurrected from the dead, and they said, Christ, you loved me, therefore I will love you. You gave your life for me, Lord, therefore I will give my life for you. And losing their lives, they gained it. By becoming servants of all, they became truly great. By knowing Jesus Christ, they knew fully what it meant to live in joy and peace. Christ gave it all for them. How could they also not give everything for him? So tonight, this is what Christ says to you. Deny yourself. That means leave your glory thieving behind. Take up your cross. That means identify with Jesus, the suffering servant of God. And come and follow him for eternal life, for joy beyond your wildest dreams, to know him who loved you first, that you be forgiven and free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ is worthy to be praised. And Lord, I do pray that you would help us to see that. We need your spirit to change us, Lord. For we're dead and stupid and dumb and foolish on our own, but you're strong and merciful and kind to love those who don't deserve such love. We thank you that he served us, and Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see how glorious, how happy, Lord, it is to serve our Savior. I thank you so much, Father, for every student here, for every staff here, Lord, would you bless us all. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.